Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name's Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. To me. To you. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Anyone for B-Ball? And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcements! Announcements! We're just going to give you our usual little shout-out to our social media channels. You can find us on YouTube. Search for Our Three Cents. You can find our streaming content on there, like my recent playthrough of Sea of Thieves, one of the tall tales with my uh, my pirate crew. And there's also some excellent miniseries that Chris has produced on there. You can find us on Twitch at O3C Podcast if you want to join in when we're streaming live. At O3C Podcast is also our Instagram handle. So find us on there and subscribe if you want to see just photos of what we're doing and also our video contents on there as well. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash our three cents. We've got loads of great perks available there in exchange for a few pennies of pleasury. So if you fancy supporting us more than you're already doing, simply just by listening to it, then check that out. So this week we have our 18th favourite video games of all time. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz. And there's just one point in it. It's going to be no points after today. Very bold. (laughs) We will find out, won't we? Robin and Rand Miller released their top-selling game, Myst, in 1993 for Mac OS. But what genre was it closely linked to? Point and click. A. (laughs) Well, Chris, you've already answered. Yeah, that's fine. A. Simulation. B. RPG. C. Puzzle. D. Racing. Fuck! I'm going to say an RPG? That is incorrect. You're both wrong. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle game. It's a puzzle game. So the point rolls over to next week. Gutted. So the point rolls over to next week, where it'll be worth two points. So if Minty gets that, he will overtake Chris, I think possibly for the first time. I'll be absolutely furious. (laughs) So what have we been playing this week? Still playing Super Mario 3D All-Stars? Either of you? Both of you? Neither of you? No. No? What have you been playing? I've been playing Xenoblade Chronicles. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm racing through it. I'm going at it at a breakneck pace (laughs) in the way that I'm utilising fast travel in such a way that I'm pretty sure all of my characters have had their necks broken from Whiplash. (laughs) Good, good, good. That's how you know you're doing it right. Yeah. It's rhyme time! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's great i i really love it good yeah it's just it's just a nice thing you're holding so many different balls and <laughs> quite the task keeping them all in the air like leveling up doing side quests crafting gems finding good equipment beating unique monsters finding secret areas i'm chipping away at each one at a steady pace and i'm really liking it i think i'm where am i at the moment good. I am on Snowy Valak Mountain. Nice name. Ah, oh, fantastic. That is gorgeous when it goes to night time. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, ju- it's just a, it's a fantastic game. It they is. Said, like, that, that sense of holding just a full world in your hands is, is quite, quite incredible. Yeah. Quite incredible. Every single area you go into is just otherworldly in its beauty. Mm. Like meteor showers on the Aerith Sea, those, oh, uh, those, those huge glowing it. crystals on the mountain. Those great sweeping arches on the on the bionist mm. leg, like it's it's remarkable. I, I really love it when all these sort of I guess these the all these normal things are taken and just sort of moulded a little bit to make them a little bit stranger. It's the best. I love it. Good. I'm glad. I'm really really glad that you're enjoying it as much as you are. How about you, Chris? Have you been playing Mario All Stars, 3D All Stars? I've played a little bit more 64. Uh, I haven't had tons of time this week, but I've knocked out a few more stars and, you know, I'm trucking through it bit by bit. I, was, I still, I'm determined to play them in order mm. because I think it, it gets, it will get annoying if I was to play a chunk of Sunshine and then try and go back to 64. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm trying to just do them sequentially. So it's kind of to, yeah. you know, I, I take on the additions that the, the franchise did essentially in, in order. Yeah. Outside of that, I played a little bit of a 
an explorative 2D platform game, I suppose you'd call it on Steam, which is named Hero, but that's spelled H-I-I-R-O instead of the regular spelling. As you would. Yeah, as you would. I I imagine it's meant to be inspired by games like Fez because it's got kind of abstract puzzles and no no explicit direction kind of thing at the start and, and a nice sort of ambient soundtrack. I, I mentioned this one mainly though because when I purchased it, it was only a pound or two. I, I liked the screenshots and thought, yeah, I'll give that a go. It just did not run on Windows 10. Flat out did not run. <laughs> and it was only because of my personal hard work that yeah. there is now a solution appended to the Steam discussion page. Ah, oh, well done you. I contacted the publisher who just told me, oh, it's too old. We're not bothering with it anymore. <laughs> and I I didn't accept that as an answer. I, <laughs> I took it upon myself to fix this. So I, I worked out the game engine it was built in, which happened to be mm. Game Maker's studio uh, i then searched the forums of that software for similar sounding bugs that i could try and apply fixes to my installation of this game and found after a bit of work it was as simple as finding the configuration any file that goes with the game and just tweaking one line to be a one rather than a zero and it will now load oh, wow so um if anyone does play it in the future and you make it work that's down to me so <laughs> check, checks in the post <laughs> The only other game I've really played much of this week, which I actually beat because it's not very long, I've already been ribbed in our Discord Patreon community, which you could be part <laughs> of if you if you pay into Patreon, uh, is a, a lovely game called Big Bobby Car, The Big Race. The <laughs> <laughs> Big Car. Yeah, it's, it's an open world driving game. I don't think it's aimed at 33-year-old men, but, you know, it, it doesn't say, say not on the box, but it comes from the same publisher that put out Windstorm. Do you remember that awful horse game I played for ages? Oh, God, yeah. What is wrong with you? And and for some reason, <laughs> I, I just get really obsessed with these sort of mindless open world games that there is no pressure. It's very low stakes, if you think of it like that, that it's you can make progress when you're not paying any attention. And I actually quite enjoy yeah. that. It's just... It's almost like having a checklist I'm just working through. I know what you mean. It's something you can do fairly sort of, yeah, like mindlessly yeah. and mindfully, like colouring in. Yeah, ex- exactly. That's a really nice way of comparing it. I Literally, the, the game that I've spent the most time playing in the last... I mean, it's not really even a game, but it's an app called Happy Colour. And it's just a colouring <laughs> in app. And I've yeah. put more hours into that in the last few weeks than I have any other game. And it is it's lovely really yeah. lovely i'd recommend it if uh if you're looking for something like that i might do something similar because it's at the moment i've, I've said a lot recently i don't mean to whinge about it I've, I've been very busy with work like every week is busy oh it's so hard having a job <laughs> <laughs> it's been nice to have something that is just no threat and and no you know no challenge to play whatsoever yeah so so this kind of did that good i'm glad well i have plowed on with super mario 3d all-stars you and have. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to announce that I did 100% Mario 64, which I didn't think I was going to do at times because I started to get a bit frustrated with it. I did start on Mario Sunshine. And then, like you said, I was like, if I do much more of this, I'm not going to be able to go back. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it didn't quite, it didn't feel right moving on with that, knowing that I'd left some unfinished business in Mario 64. So uh, yeah, and, and, and I've, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It did really whet my appetite to play the DS version again. But then I also thought I haven't played the 4K version on the PC. <laughs> so I think I might play that just because re- I want some more, just a bit more modernization yeah, to yeah. it. And I think I'll get it with that. So I, I, am, I probably will do that at some point because I haven't got enough Mario to play. <laughs> so I started on Super Mario Sunshine. And as of this afternoon, have 100% completed that. Of course you have. <laughs> wow. I don't think I've ever completed Mario's Sunshine. I think it was the blue coins that got me down. Oh my, yeah. I thought I had. I thought I nearly had them all because I was like, oh, there's 15 on each level and it adds up to 120. There's 120 blue coins. Nope, 240. 30 on each <laughs> level. Yeah. Ooh. And uh, I spent the last few days hunting down all the blue coins I'm surprised at how many I remembered, like just weird little ones that you you would never find unless you knew they were there. But I sort of, you know, remember them. And I did look up a few when I was just like, well, I've literally got all the blue coins. So what the fuck? Oh, no, there's there's one there if you, if you twirl around a pumpkin or something. And I must say, I had an infinitely more enjoyable time playing through Sunshine than I did with Mario 64. It is so good. It is such a brilliant game. It feels so good and so modern to play. Like it, re- it really pisses me off that people say it's not a real sequel to Mario 64. Yeah. Because that's exactly what it is. Like, I don't understand. 
I've started playing Mario Galaxy now. And the formula is very, very different in Galaxy in terms of how the levels are set up and stuff. And yet people say that Galaxy is almost the true sequel to 64. Like, is it because you have the long jump and crouch backflip moves in there again? Is it the fact that you can you have to rotate the camera in the same way that you do in Mario 64? <laughs> like, is that what it is? Like, I don't, I don't know because... It is because Mario finally has long sleeves again. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, no, you're right. I stand corrected. Yeah, Sunshine, void. But yeah, I, 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 I mean, I can't speak highly enough of Mario Sunshine. It was so much fun going back through and finding all the blue coins. It was really fun going and getting all the hundred coin shines, which is something that could not be said of Mario 64, <laughs> which was just a ball yeah. ache. One of the things I'd forgotten is that I, I've mentioned a few times the, the the non-flood secret levels in Sunshine, which is they're just they're just great. But if you if you go back and replay them, you can play them with your flood whilst also trying to get eight red coins within a fixed time limit for a bonus shine, uh, and and that is just superb. Like it again, it just turns turns those levels on its head again, and you got to think about it in a new way, and they were just great. It's just brilliant, and yet yeah, so far galaxy is 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 pretty good like i i love the uh globular nature of the little planets that's fun <laughs> it's uh reminiscent of outer wilds which i quite yeah. liked the one thing that I'm, I'm struggling with so far is there hasn't been as much compensation for the lack of motion controls in handheld yeah as i thought there was going to be because I, i've only played it in handheld so far and i'm having to touch the screen a lot and there are like there are times when you need to like touch the screen and fire your little star bits at things. And because it's like the ZR button, you have to take your hand off the control stick in order to aim. And then, so you have to stand. It's just, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's not, it, it's not very good so far, but I think I, I really want to give it a go docked with the Joy-Con to see if that feels a bit better. Even things just like going in and out of menus, you have to do with the touchscreen. And it's like, it would have been hard to say press A or one of the things that struck me that would have been a, a better solution I mentioned about the camera and how you sort of rotate it in a similar way as you do in Mario 64. You don't really need to control the camera, like because of the way that the little, I mean, it might be different, you know, in some of the bigger levels and later on and stuff. But so far I haven't had any issues just with the automatic camera just following me because it's quite far back because it has to be because you need to sort of be able to see more of the, the area where you're, you're running around and stuff. So if they'd have just mapped, like even just like a little cursor to the right stick so you can move that around, easy. <laughs> So hopefully I'll I'll have a I'll, I'll either sort of settle into it a bit more in, in handheld or, or or sort of find find the sweet spot with it in um in docked mode because yeah I, I really like what it's I mean it's 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 so different it's so so different to Sunshine and sixty four and 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 Odyssey as well like it's really good it's really really good I, I love some of the design in it and some of the design of the levels it just makes I just want to explore and that's really really fun and you can turn into a bee which is lovely I love a bee bee Mario you can be Mario yes <laughs> <laughs> terrible oh that got me so should we move on to the rankings Oh, go on then. Starting this week, we have my game. Jonathan Dunn. Jonathan Dunn's game this week is the third game from this series that's appeared in my list. You can't count. (laughs) And there's still one more from the series yet to appear. It's a Pokemon game. And my 18th favourite video game of all time award goes to the original Pokemon Blue. Yes. Yeah. What I've played. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before I continue, we've all spoken before about how we've had various games in our lists that are standing in for a whole series or even representing a whole company like like Minty with with Yacht Club and and Shovel Knight. And and where possible, I've tried to do this as well, apart from when I don't feel like the games do stand as a replacement for other games in their series. Like I said with Mario Kart games, that there were some games that gave me a vastly different experience to others in the series. You know, I couldn't have had Mario Kart Super Circuit standing in for Mario Kart 8. It, it just wouldn't feel right. And the Legend of Zelda games, like I spoke about last week, they're all such individual creations that I've had unique experiences with that I can't bundle them all into, into one entry. I think a good example of this is if we were to redo our lists, Chris would have Tetris 99 and Tetris Effect as separate entries because yeah. they give you such a vastly different gaming experience. P- probably number one and number two in your list, though, let's be honest. <laughs> They'd be up there. <laughs> <laughs> so whereas some Pokemon games from the series haven't appeared in my list, 
and and in hindsight, I'm a bit gutted that I didn't find a place for Pokemon Sapphire in my list because I absolutely love that game. It helps that it heroes possibly my favourite Pokemon, Kyogre, and the weather system really brought the world to life. I did have the, the, the 3DS version, Amiga Sapphire, on my list for a very, very long time, but it just got shunted off the bottom of the list in the end by the rightly deserving Jurassic Park on the Game Boy <laughs> and Clockwork Night 2 on the Saturn. Naturally. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about that game today. Today, I'm here to take us back to where it all began. And like last week's game, this story takes us back to year seven, when little 11-year-old Jonathan and little 11-year-old Chris were becoming friends in the form room of Mr. Thorne. And one morning, I remember there, there was a little buzz of excitement in the form room between the three or four of us who, who cared about such things. Chris had got a copy of Pokemon. Ooh. Ooh. Wow, I thought. I, I don't know what one of those is. But I watched Chris play it. I got a vague sense of what the game was about. And Chris, you know, you explained it to me a bit more. I remember you nicknaming your Pokemon all kinds of silly things so that you couldn't find the ones you wanted in the incredibly cumbersome and convoluted in-game Pokemon story system. Yeah. I've got a very, very specific memory of us sitting in a classroom one evening before a choir concert. And you were trying to catch Moltres in, in Victory Road. And I remember that being a very exciting thing, that there were these legendary Pokemon. But I also remember you, in Victory Road, catching a Marowak and calling it Marowank, following a <laughs> suggestion from Ben Mayo. You didn't. <gasps> it's, it is weird what stays in your memory, but there it is. Important things, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Marowank, a diglet called Condom. I know. Oh, dear, dear. Take these things to your grave. Now, the reason I was watching Chris play this and only Chris and no one else and not playing it myself is because Chris had imported a copy from America and had the English language version of the game quite some time ahead of it being available in the UK and and certainly long before it became the the phenomenon it was was bound to become. And I remember you giving me the phone number from the back of a magazine that you could order an imported copy from and I I eagerly gave it to my mum to try and source me a copy of, of Pokemon Blue. Seeing as you had Pokemon Red, that would mean that we could trade version exclusive Pokemon to each other. And I I distinctly remember the day when my mum came to pick me up from school. I was sat in the passenger seat and she feigned a a, a whoops and knocked the glove box open to reveal my copy of Pokemon Blue. And and, and I think it's the most excited I've ever been to come into possession of a game. Amazing. In fact, I was much more excited to own the game than I was clued up how to actually play it. And and I think I fumbled my way through the first gym and a couple of towns before finally realising how I was meant to play the game. And I think I I restarted and and set off on my adventure proper. I chose Charmander as my starter, which set the tone for how I would choose a fire type starter for every single game since then. And I started to have the most incredible adventure. Like it's a a true testament to the imagination of a child that I was so deeply involved in this game that is made up of incredibly basic graphics, incredibly irritating chiptune music, no color, no animation, but it perfectly captured my imagination. And I was able to fill in all of these elements in the game that, that was beyond the hardware at this point. Our other Game Boy friend who I've mentioned before, Dev, he taped some of the episodes of the anime series that were being shown exclusively on, on Sky. And that allowed me to add even more detail to my imagined experience of Pokemon Blue. And for a trio of people who, who like you said a few weeks back, Chris, uh, were, were never considered cool. There was, <laughs> there was certainly a, a pang of pride when, when Pokemania finally sort of hit the school in the coming years, knowing that the three of us had, had, been, had been well ahead of the curve and were in possession of all the knowledge of the game that our friend now craved. Like I remember typing up uh, like a full guide that I'd pieced together from FAQs I'd found online and gave it to a boy in, in the year above us, which, which made me feel very important. <laughs> I just want to take a moment, just honour the design of this original generation of Pokemon. It's easy to criticise a lot of Pokemon designs that have appeared over the years with, with Pokemon slowly turning into anthropomorphized Beauty and the Beast characters with ones resembling sandcastles and ice creams and teapots. But, but I think it's easy to underestimate the colossal job the team at Game Freak had to, to create this entirely new species of creatures. Like when you look at the myths and, and legends of old and, and, and look at the type of fantastical creatures that were being invented, though there were often a, a combination of two other things, you know, horse plus man equals centaur, woman plus fish equals mermaid, eagle plus whore equals harpy, snake plus share <laughs> equals medusa, lion plus scorpion plus bat equals manticore or something else like that. But, but coming up with the, the general codes and conventions of what a Pokemon should be 
and then following those rules to create 150 totally original animals is a huge task. And, and there are some great designs in this first batch. Like, I, I love the legendary birds, especially Articuno. I, I, I loved Articuno. Just just so cool. Like, I mean, literally. I uh, had a real fondness for the surprisingly speedy triple-headed mole orgy that is Dugtrio. Oh, yes. The starters and their evolutionary lines were great. I adore Chansey. But, but can you imagine the person designing that? Like walking up to the head of design at Game Freak with a little sketch on a piece of paper, placing it down next to drawings of Rhyhorn and Charizard and Gengar and going, what about this egg? <laughs> Obviously, there were some bunk designs in there. Mr. Mime failed to have any relevance in my life until the Detective Pikachu movie. Meowth is just a cat and Jinx is just racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there was something about this this communal experience of, of the game that, that we experienced in, in the year or two after me and you had got the game, Chris, and, and the rest of the UK were, were catching up with us trendy trailblazers. There was, there was something about this collective phenomena that, that fueled my imagination even more. Like, I remember the first time I heard about Mew, the, the mythical 151st Pokemon. It's referenced in the game, and there were loads of fan theories and just made-up nonsense about how you could get hold of Mew. But but to us back then, the only actual way to get one was through the seemingly mythical Game Genie device that would hack its way through the game's codes to, to, to manipulate them to your will. But it didn't stop us trying absolutely everything we could, no matter how bizarre the method, whether it was skipping the SSN and coming back to the dock with a Rhyhorn with strength to try and move the truck, whether it was trying to get into a battle on a certain square in the unknown dungeon with a party of only dittos. And of course, who can forget the in-game hacking machine, Missingno, the glitched missing number Pokemon that you could encounter by surfing along the edge of Cinnabar Island. And if you caught it, it would knock seven shades of shit out of your save file. But you could harness its glitchy powers to duplicate items like rare candies. You could encounter glitched battles with Professor Oak. And through some weird chain of events, I think you can make the Mew sprite appear, even though it was breaking the game. And if you caught it, it would just be a shit in a Pokeball or something. But I remember once turning on my Game Boy to find that my save file had been wiped. 120 hours of gameplay gone because I'd fallen oh. to the dark side and tried to tame missing no to my megalomaniacal whims. <laughs> and I remember being acutely aware of how unstable the game could be or, or how games in general could be. I've always had an incredible fear of losing save data ever since, which it, it was less debilitating you know, now than it was uh, when we were kids because we've got cloud saves and remote backups and everything else. But one of the things that does absolutely astound me is that now, like... 25 years later, there is a legitimate way to get Mew in the game because the code for Mew is in there. And it took, it took like, you know, 20 years for people to work out an incredibly precise series of inputs that will cause Mew to degenerate on, on one particular square of grass. Like, I guess in a way it, it's sort of a hack because it sure as hell wasn't programmed to be accessible like that. But it does it in a way that doesn't need you to strap on a Game Genie nappy to your cartridge or, or risk losing your save data by playing the missing number game. And I, I love the fact that people just relentlessly worked at trying to find a way to get Mew until they could. And it's just great that that happened. But I was thrilled when I found out that a slightly more polished version of the game was coming out in the form of Pokemon Yellow. Now, this was the first of the third pillar Pokemon games that would become a staple of most of the generations going forward. And it was an opportunity for the developers to, to smooth off some rough edges and add in some extra features and in the, in the case of Pokemon Yellow, put it, put it closer in line with the anime series. Like, if you look at some of the Pokemon designs in Pokemon Red and Blue, they, they look unrecognisable to what their anime counterparts look like. And, I mean, God forbid you look at the, the sprites from Pokemon Green, the Japanese release. My God, the horror. Like, some of those are pure genetic abominations that need to be suffocated with a prickly pillow. So there, there were some truly weird designs that were, were all taken out of the game and replaced with some much kinder on the eyes sprites designed straight out of the anime animator's rulebook. It also added in Jesse and James from the anime series to lend a bit more weight to the Team Rocket battles. But the biggest change in the game was that you got Pikachu as your starting Pokemon and, and he would follow along behind you in the game and, and you, could, you could turn and check in with him and get some beautifully crisp and clean recorded voice samples of Pikachu <laughs> from the anime. Please play one here when you do the edit. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting shift for the game like it felt a bit smoother and more stable to play having pikachu as a starter made the first chunk of the game a lot harder because of brock's rock type gym being the game's opener but but boy oh boy did misty get a pasting and, and it helped that i was playing the game on my brand new pokemon special edition game boy color and there was slightly more than 
just the vague colorization applied to Pokemon Yellow. Like Pikachu was yellow with little red cheeks. The towns were all tinted different colors. I mean, obviously it still looked like shit compared to today's standards, but it was enough to feed my imagination even more. I've spoken a lot about the shared connection I've had with a lot of games with my brother Alex. And, and I always felt that handheld games, they, they were always my domain. And Pokemon, along with games like Link's Awakening, they, they really felt like a whole world that, that belonged to me. And Pokemon especially came along at a time in my life when, you know, I was most impressionable. And I mean, it had a profound effect on me, something I'm still feeling every bit as keenly as I did then, like 20 years later. It's mad. I've just reinstalled Pokemon Go after you talked about it the other day, Chris. And uh, I'm happily getting back into that. And I can't wait for the second piece of DLC to come out for Pokemon Sword in a couple of weeks time. It's going to be fantastic. And even though I, I've played both remasters of the original game, obviously in the form of Pokemon Fire Red and Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu, and they, they were lovely, really lovely versions of the game that added a whole other depth to that world. Like the original game, the, the physical game cartridge and the physical game box, which which I have got, it's literally sat behind me here. They, they mean so much to me and, and they always will because because that's where it all started. And I love it. Like, I love Pokemon. <laughs> I absolutely love Pokemon. And my first Poke love was my 18th favourite video game of all time, Pokemon Blue. Brilliant. I, I think like, when I talked about Pokemon Go last week, it did have a similar feeling to when we were playing Pokemon the first time around, like in, in Red and Blue, mm. like you say. And and I think the only difference really is is being like, obviously in my late 20s when, when Go came out, you have a different kind of emotional toolkit to kind of absorb these things in the world. Mm. And, and and like you say, to, to have it come at such an impressionable time when we were 11 and 12, even though I haven't kept up with Pokemon as a franchise, it's still something that I w- would absolutely say, like you did, has has sculpted part of who I am today. Yeah. Like that experience of playing at that time, being ahead of the curve and how important that felt then, it, it was a massive, massive experience. And yeah, what what a great game. <laughs> what a great game those, those early ones were. I love them. Good. So moving on, we have Chris's game. Chris, can you please tell us about your 18th favourite video game of all time? Oh, sit down for this one, boys. Just going to load up Happy Colour. <laughs> if any of those listening at home are sitting on like a latent media studies degree, this is a dedication to you. <laughs> In thinking about this game, I thought mostly about postmodernism. Excellent. And that postmodernism is, is quite a hard concept to grasp. And I feel that's because its, it's application is quite wide. Uh, and because like the central conceit, if you really try and break it down, in, of postmodernism is that the language we use and the idea of kind of truth and, and empiricism are not necessarily fixed in their meanings or readings. And, and that basically allows us to view almost any contemporary media, especially, as being defiantly postmodern and yet at the same time simultaneously defiantly not. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a weird like limbo state for, you know, to use to discuss media. Because it's it's a movement and, and a genre in some cases that is built on a certain vagary, I think. When I've been revisiting today's game this week, it made me think of the Michael Winsbottom film A Cock and Ball Story. Brilliant postmodernism. It is. It is a really good example. Like it's it's a brilliant comedy drama. It, yeah. It stars Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, and the film is trying to chronicle the attempt and subsequent failure to reinterpret an experimental novel from seventeen fifty nine called The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy into a feature film. Often attributed as the first work of postmodernism before there was a modernism to be post about. Exactly, exactly. And like the the film is loosely, I guess, about the idea that there is there's a certain value in creative endeavour regardless of output at the end. And it uses many of these kind of postmodern devices that that we understand now as people who who consume media that there's intertextuality, that there's kind of acknowledgement of a fourth wall and, and you know direct address of the audience as the watcher. There's a, there's a non-linear narrative that tries to adapt to the book. Like you say, that was essentially one of the very earliest examples of, of post-modernity at a time when modernity had not yet happened. I think anyone could argue that, that video games themselves are an inherently postmodern medium just by virtue of their implicit and unbreakable acknowledgement that they are being played and controlled by a force outside of themselves. And any game, even going right back to kind of the earliest examples, if if they have a screen that asks you to press a button, like press start on a title screen, it immediately breaks that fourth wall. Like a, a game can't be passive or it's not a game. So so by definition it kind of touches on these ideas of, of, of postmodernity. And also because games draw so much from other media conventions as well. 
they they have to reappropriate and they recontextualize as like a core function of their existence. So you've got examples like The Last of Us that we've talked about loads over the last few months mm. is almost like an interactive movie. But because it's doing that, because it's taking the conventions of film, it, it then has to be a postmodern text just by way of referencing all these other things at the same time as trying to be its own thing. But that goes right back as well to like the earliest RPGs were attempting to you know, automate a physical Dungeons and Dragons experience. And that idea of taking something from one culture and media and, and moving into something totally different is is a big part of what postmodernism is about, I think. In games, though, this example today, my 18th favourite video game of all time, I think is is the best example of, of postmodernism I've, I've seen. And it is the episodic adventure game Kentucky Route Zero that I don't know if any of you have played. No, I know that you played it again recently. I did. Didn't you? Uh, there's a collection that came out on the Switch, is that right? Yeah, the Switch and the PS4 and uh, the PC and the Xbox. It's, it's on everything, basically. Published by the, the wonderful people at Annapurna Interactive. Oh, those guys. They, they've got My a good track God. record. Yes, they do. <laughs> I mean, Kentucky Route Zero, it was a game that was released in chunks over an obscene seven-year period. <laughs> and when we compiled these lists, the game actually hadn't even been finished. I'd played four out of what would be an eventual five chapters. But I knew, even then, that this was a very good game. This this was going to go high on the list, even if I hadn't seen the conclusion yet. The, the setup, you've got a lead character called Conway. He's a delivery driver attempting to complete his rounds for a small antiques firm. And his final delivery asks him to make a delivery to Five Dogwood Drive, just a regular address. But realising that he's lost, he stops at a gas station off of uh, Interstate 65 in Kentucky. And then from that point on, there is basically no conventional narrative form or sense going forwards. Kentucky Route Zero is ostensibly a, a point-and-click game. There's there's dialogue, there's simple puzzles, there's there's a, always a character that you are moving about a scene. But it's a game that I think is really, really important and very, very clever because it draws not only from a history of its own medium, so there's there's elements in this game that you could trace back, right back to kind of early text adventures like Zork through to kind of like the, the, the humorous point-and-click games like Monkey Island and other LucasArts games right through to sort of the choice-driven stuff of, of Telltale games more recently. But it also references and draws on the history of art and entertainment so much more broadly in a way that I don't think I've seen in any other game to date. Back in A Cock and Ball Story, Steve Coogan, in, in one scene, playing a, a fictionalised version of Steve Coogan, addresses the, the camera directly and explains that in one section of the book they're trying to adapt, Tristram Shandy, the author attempts to explain the way a character is responding to another's death just by presenting a completely black page. Like, there's no dialogue, it's just a flat, black printed page. I've always found that particular example of of drawing from different media really, really enticing. And and in a book from that time period, like the 1700s, to use a solid black page, not in the same way as a picture book would use an illustration, but in a way that is attempting to engage the reader in in a feeling much more closer to, you know, what we think now as, as viewing, you know, abstract contemporary art, essentially, something like Mark Rothko, it's, it's hugely impressive for that time period. I, th- I think Rothko is one of my favourite sort of visual artists because if you look at one of his big canvases, they are absolutely massive to see in person. They can make you feel cold or warm. They can make you feel like you're sat in an empty expanse or, or feel like claustrophobically oppressive. And I just can't fathom how this would have been received in a publication of a book like 200 plus years ago. That That sort of <laughs> feeling of something that was so in your face and so different to how you would usually read a text that it just makes my head spin a bit. Yet Kentucky Route Zero is a game that's not afraid to use very specific conventions of other media in this way, but in a video game. And it, it uses all these different things to kind of offer very challenging topics and explore very challenging feelings. But it's it's so liberal with that approach throughout kind of the 10 or so hours it runs that you just you never feel like you sit still it's it's a game that's always changing and adapting in front of you and it's again it's really breathtaking to see the only way i could break this down i've i've done myself a list like a numbered list of some of the things that i think are really important about this game number 1 then this is a game that more than any i've ever seen is inspired by theater most most definitely each episode is considered an act with distinct scenes some locations are stripped back as if they're they're kind of dressed for the stage, like really considering the idea of like mise en scène as opposed to, you know, having wider realism or setting in in a scene. They they they're not afraid to take things out. Dialogue is is presented often as if it were a script with with italic directions. 
you've got clearly delineated kind of character prompts in the way the dialogue is written sometimes the main protagonist can change within a scene not necessarily who you are controlling but who is speaking and who is guiding the dialogue which feels really alien at first until you kind of feel it as if there are multiple protagonists you you are only playing one part but there are other people that you are engaging with in this way it explores really varied narration styles, like jumping from first person to third person to, to whatever's in between the two. Second person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Second person is such like a vague term. It doesn't really mean enough. There's a good um, writer I really enjoyed as a kid, um, Australian writer called Paul Jennings. Yes, yeah. Round the twist. <laughs> yeah, adapted from his stories. There's a one of his stories is is written in second person, oh. which which basically makes it feel like a choose your own adventure book. Yeah, because it's like yeah. you are this, you are that. I remember being being struck by that. It's really cool because that leads on to number two on my list. <laughs> that this <laughs> this is a game heavily inspired by poetry and literature, again in a way that you don't expect from from video games. None of the dialogue in the whole game is voiced. Instead, it it can kind of like crawl playfully across the screen sometimes they experiment with the delivery style of the of the letters themselves like the physical font and text sometimes long paragraphs are kind of offered in a big batch sometimes you get truncated staccato sentences sometimes the game will deliver a simple line before asking you to press a button to continue sometimes it will give you like a big conversation role almost like a teleprompter it's it's really playful with how it uses text to to engage you in different ways at different times throughout the story Sometimes the text is treated like it, it might be moving up and down the window. It might be coloured differently. It might be altered in some way to kind of give a word or a phrase additional weight and meaning. There's loads of nice touches in the way that it's written in that the simplest of player choices sometimes, like just exiting a location, can be really playful and, and florid. Like instead of saying, are you ready to go? Yes or no? It will say something like, Conway is ready to leave versus Conway has nowhere to go. And it's just simple ways of, of just representing something that we're very used to in games but giving just a little bit more thought to what's actually happening in a lovely early scene like i'm I'm hesitant to say puzzle because there's not really a fail state in the game but it's something that you figure out you're told that the password to a computer system is and this is a direct quote kind of long kind of like a short poem one of those short poems that really sums it all up and then when you do find the computer terminal in question, you're asked to choose from a selection of phrases to create your own little verse. Wow. So this this time when I played, my password was, wheels slide loose, the moon throbs, the lights whine. And it's just really beautiful. The, the whole thing is written so beautifully that it's, it's something else. And I've never seen a game take so much care over its writing. Like even a visual novel, like when I talked about 999 a couple months ago, Mm. It had a great story, but the text itself can still sometimes be a bit perfunctory. It's not performative. It's just getting you from A to B, essentially. But here, every single word is is considered. And when we talked about Inside, we talked about how much timing was tweaked in that game to make everything feel like you just get away or you just make a jump. Yeah. And it feels like the delivery of text in this game has had that same treatment, that every word is like, when is that going to show up on the screen? What is that going to feel like when we first read it? And and again, I just I haven't seen that before. Parts of the game read almost like a Cormac McCarthy novel. Bits of it feel like Thomas Pynchon. It's a really dense game that is really, really wonderfully written. Back on track to the list. Sorry, that was <laughs> a big point for text there. <laughs> it's a game inspired by visual art. It's, it's my third point. Like every location is made of, of vectorized polygons, flat textures, but all with loads of incidental detail. The game plays with, with angles a lot, almost like the fixed cameras of, of early Resident Evil in places. But also it's it's the idea that it is a game and a developer that is actually interested and obsessed with the history of, of contemporary and, and visual art. So one act concerns itself almost exclusively with a museum and its contents. One of the interstitial episodes, which, which falls between acts, takes place in a gallery where you pick through a fictional artist's collective work as a trio of characters that are totally external to the main story. So they exist purely to be kind of yourself within the game, essentially, to, to witness this artist's work and get a feel for it. And it's also a game that lets you collect ephemera in, in an inventory, almost never for a particular purpose, but just to, to have things, to manipulate them and to sort of like imagine rolling them in your palm and really, really look at them. It's, it's a game that's all about text and reading, but also all about like the visual splendor of, of everything in the world. Number four, <laughs> it is a game about cartography. It's a game about orienteering. It's a game about architecture. It's a game about, you know, terms like psychogeography as well. It's got the eponymous Route Zero from the title is, is this road that, that looms large across the whole game. 
and it's something that is known to almost every character in the world but seems to be something very different to everyone who speaks about it but you do have this idea of movement like between an act as you as you leave a place to move to somewhere else you manipulate kind of a little icon across a wireframe map and there's a lot of this kind of movement that takes place in this scene that is separate to the actual locations but again rather than locations just popping up on the map and you just go okay that's where I'm going you're given these instructions which links back to this idea of the the lovely text and you have things like continue north on 65 swing right after you pass the artificial limb factory that's got kind of like just more flavor text about the world many scenes as well concern themselves with with physical space so again that kind of theater connection i think to the idea of linear spaces of, of liminal spaces of constructed versus natural spaces one act is based largely around a building known as the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces, Wonderful. which is an office where its sole function is to, to repurpose abandoned places, which is a gorgeous concept. Yeah. <laughs> really, really nice. And another one what opens up with a character receiving a letter from the Gaston Trust for Imagined Architecture. Like, everything about the game is evocative. It's, it's just such a, an atmospheric place to be. Finally, number five on this list, it is... Like a really wonderful genre piece, but one of no fixed genre, <laughs> if, if that makes any sense. Like, I, I think on paper, it's it's a game that's kind of like Americana, but it's also got like a tinge of cyberpunk in it, in terms of the combination of it's got like real low life and high tech together. It's got these kind of oppressive corporate entities that you you hear about that are just kind of on the outskirts of the story that's being told. You've got ideas of kind of like eroding personal worth. It could be a surrealist story, I guess, but then it's presented so straight that maybe it's more like magical realism if, if you're going for that. There's even like elements for your investigation and, and kind of the gloomy, shadowy presentation that feel a bit like noir. The jokes sometimes feel like it's almost like an absurdist comedy. Like it's a bit of everything, but never in a way that feels like I'm just doing this for a laugh. I'm just chucking this in as a little, little nod and a reference. It all serves the story. And it's just a game that does so much that it really is its own thing. Like I'm, I'm giving these cultural media reference points, but I don't think there's a single way to view it once you pass the initial idea on paper that at least it's meant to be an adventure game, but it's it's not just that once you start. All of these points I've made, I think, despite how disparate they may sound in isolation, just come together to create an astonishing piece of work. Like It, it somehow maintains a singular focus and atmosphere in spite of all these varied influences. As I've said, a, a beautifully written game, a, a beautiful looking game, a game that's challenging because of its concepts rather than because it's difficult gameplay. Everyone's played a point-and-click game pretty much, but I'm confident that without playing Kentucky Route Zero, you haven't played something like this. This is a totally different experience. For me, like I often consume media and come away thinking, oh, that was good, or, or that, that's something I could recommend to someone. But it's less often that I watch or play or listen to something and just feel totally humbled by how impressive it is as a piece of creative work. And, and Kentucky Route Zero, despite its massive gestation period, is one of those bits of media that it is wholly unique despite its influences. It's something that I think crucially could only exist as a game because of how it's drawing all these elements together. And, and the shifts in approach, in, in narrative, in structure, they're drawing from these areas I've mentioned. But as a package, they become video gamey because they are interactive. You know, it, it's distinctively video gamey. It, it is a, a playable thing and I don't think it would work in any other genre. I think it is absolutely not to everyone's taste. <laughs> if, if anyone has listened to this description and thought, that sounds boring as fuck, then maybe it is for, for those people. But I'm confident that if it's something that does ring true for anyone, you, you can't help but love it. It's the developer Cardboard Computer's only release. Uh, and I think today it is an absolute masterpiece. Like a team of three people made this. And, and it remains one of the most impressive things that I've ever seen or played. So yeah, 18th favourite game of all time, Kentucky Route Zero, whoosh, what what a game. <laughs> Fair play. Never heard of it, but it sounds just, what a description, mm. what a shining and glowing recommendation. It, it, sound, it sounds just wonderful. I can't sell it highly enough. Like I, I think for your interests, Minty, outside of just the games we play, I think they specifically for you too, because of your interests and, and your skills and the things we've all done throughout our, our educations and everything else, it is absolutely a game that would appeal to the two of you. Mm. And if you ever see it for a reasonable price or if you just see it for a regular price on, on any storefront, I, I really, really think you both should should give it a look. 
because yeah, I, I've deliberately not given anything away about this story other than the name of a few locations, and I, I think you need to you need to play it to really experience it. I absolutely intend to do so. Good, my work here is done. <laughs> but finally, and also mentally, Minty, <laughs> can you please tell us about your eighteenth favorite video game of all time, please, sir? One of the words that I try to keep mindful of as I go about my life is the word elevate. When I do something, how can I elevate it? How can I elevate this meal? How can I elevate my job performance? How can I elevate the experience of guests, professional and personal? It's something I look for in other aspects of life as well, and it's a good way of staying positive. Uh, for example, let's say uh, I order a sandwich from a little bistro. Do I chide myself for spending nine quid on a BLT? Or do I look at the decor of the place? Do I breathe in the carefully crafted atmosphere, taste how the curation of each ingredient has made this sandwich better than just grabbing one from Greg's? <laughs> or when I want to crack a beer, do I go for the pale ale that says on the back, we start with a simple malt base and dry hop with citron mosaic to create a dank, hazy hop explosion of a beer <laughs> that ends up just being a boozy pineapple juice with an uninspired marketing department churning out lazy copy? Or do I go for the can next to it that uses their own unique yeast strain, looks at all the flavours and textures each ingredient brings, coaxes them out and uplifts them and holds them in perfect balance to create something just completely outstanding? There's of course a place for both, and even though a quick stop at Greg's or a four-pack of Aldi Pilsner is more common an occurrence, it does just as much to elevate those other experiences as the work that went into that fancy sandwich and the wanky beer themselves. <laughs> so when we think of the 2D platformer, immediately we think of a, a hammered jump button, thumb aching from holding right on the D-pad, a clockwise trip around the world that ends up with a princess saved, a, a villain chastened, a world at peace, and that's fine. We've heard of so many done well in each of our lists. So when you have something like Warrior Land 2 come along <gasps> that subverts the expectations of the genre <laughs> and offers an experience so stuffed, so involving, so vast and so strange, how can you call it anything less than elevated? Yes, Absolutely wonderful. what a game. I've been sat on this for months. <laughs> when it appeared on your list, I was like, Ooh, I can't talk about it much here. And also... Heathen. <laughs> 73, Jonathan. 70, was it? 73. Yeah, it's a good game. <laughs> yeah. It's still one of the best games I've ever played. It's in that yeah. list. So rather than it being just a, a gauntlet of platforms and enemies, each level has a definite setting. Uh, be a Wario castle, the cellar, a haunted house or the woods. And each area has challenges and set pieces to overcome that are unique and relevant to each area. That might seem like an obvious thing when you put it in simple words such as this but there was a real sense that you were in these places and not just in a level that was made to look like it which is the distinction i'm trying to make the opening level of chapter two is set in like a like sort of a, a chicken farm i guess it's, it's fairly flat and linear your hen has escaped so you have to bring her back to the nest at the start of the level just a, a simple left and right level. The topography makes sense. There's no floating platforms, no silly bullshit, just a rolling field with some scary roosters to avoid. Uh, levels in Syrup Castle are laid out how you would expect. Adjoining rooms, sweeping corridors, non-linear areas to explore. It's great. Every environment is crafted uniquely and to the level that you would expect each one to be. Instead of power-ups that make you big or somehow equipped to finish the level faster or with greater ease, each of Wario's transformations are used in the puzzle solving. And it's just the best. Like, <laughs> oh, I can't get past these tough bricks. Um, I, I can't use my charge attack against them. So it does nothing. So I, I'll do what anyone would do and find the cake-wielding mole to engorge <laughs> me, giving me, me the girth I need to smash through. This zombie will grant me ephemerality to pass through the fake floor. The obstacles are woven into the level design, as are the enemies and the hazards that give you those abilities to break them. And perhaps most crucially, the cure to your various ailments are also placed in that level design, giving another dimension to these puzzles. So you might enter a, a room in the caves and there's a hole in the wall with large rocks dropping through. You stand under one of those and it squishes you flat so that you can become a flat and floaty warrior to get through a tight gap. But there's also the extra element of having to avoid the bats on the way there that give you a tug and pull you back up to your original size. The integration is seamless. 
Incredibly well done. One of the sentences in the manual that I remember. Oh, do you remember manuals? <laughs> oh, manuals. <laughs> yeah. It's all done online these days, isn't it? Oh, it sucks. Bowl of hot dicks. Mm, the death of the thing that you can have. Oh. Death of ephemera. Chris, you've had your time. <laughs> <laughs> One of the sentences in the manual that I remember said, Wario Land 2 is much better than any... Oh, this is a quote. Wario Land 2 is much better than any of my previous games. Why, you ask? Because in this game, I'm immortal. There is no game over. With multiple endings, you can play my game many times. Isn't that great? (laughs) (laughs) And it is. It is. Like... So many branching paths and so many different kinds of levels, it seemed absolutely insurmountable to my 11-year-old mind. But surmount it, I did. (laughs) Complete one story branch to unlock the story tree, which lets you see which levels have a secret exit, which ones have a piece of treasure to find. It's it's a completionist dream. And Wario Land 2 is just a dream in general. Absolutely wonderful. It's a brilliant game. Yep. I bought this game when I was in year six and it was one of the first times I'd walked into town like on my own with friends. I was, I was allowed to go out like without parental supervision. And I I took my saved pocket money to Dixon's at the time. And I bought a copy of Virtucop 2 on the Saturn. Oh wow. And I bought, and I bought a copy of Warrior Land 2 on on the Game Boy. And I went home, excitedly played Virtucop and was like, yeah, shoot all the, shoot all the men. It's fantastic. But what game was I still playing 20 years later? It's not Virtucop 2. It's because you haven't got a CRT TV, is it? <laughs> God. Yeah. Otherwise. That's it. That's it. So there we have it. Another three games from us three cents. First of all, we had Pokemon Blue. And then we had... Kentucky Route Zero. Before finally... Wario Land. Absolutely wonderful. If you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on social media, tell some friends about it. You can reach out to us on social media as well. We have a YouTube channel, search for our 3cents. You can find us on Twitch at O3C Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at O3C Podcast. Facebook.com slash Our3Cents is where you'll find our Facebook page, and you can chat to us there about games that you're playing, take us to task on our opinions on these ones. You can even ask us a question that you might like us to answer in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individual like. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I'm at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, please do check out that Patreon page, patreon.com slash our3cents, and consider pledging a few pennies our way. We'd be very much appreciative. And please do join us next week for our 17th favourite video games of all time. Hey Lassie, what are you doing here? Timmy's in a well. Sequelcast 2 and Friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time, like Harry Potter, Hellraiser, and The Hobbit. And sometimes the hosts talk about video games and TV as well. And now it's part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Oh Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. Come on, guys, we're gonna be late for class. Oh, darn, not on our first day. Don't worry, I pressurized all of our bike tires to optimal PSI for speed. Wow. So we should be able to average 9.6 miles per hour, which should get us to class on time. We, we love, love Podford, Podford University, University for teaching us, for teaching us these skills. skills. Podford University, iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts.